listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me today is Joachim Book. Joachim is a writer, researcher, and editor on all things money, finance, and financial history. He holds a master's degree from the University of Oxford and was a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research in 2018 and 2019. For our purposes today, Joachim also writes frequently about environmental issues and human progress. His work has been featured in the Financial Times, FT Alphaville, and he's a frequent contributor to publications such as CapEx, Notes on Liberty, and humanprogress.org. Joachim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so there's a ton that we can talk about with you in uh, all the topics that you write about. It's a huge range of things, a lot of finance, Bitcoin. But uh, obviously for our audience, we're interested in your work on sort of environmentalism and human progress. Just to start, you know, how did you develop an interest in writing on these issues? And then just tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So uh, these are diverging topics, like, and I get this question a lot, and sometimes quite aggressively by people who, who say, you know, you're, by training, you're a financial historian, what could you possibly have to say, you know, about markets or Bitcoin or climate change or, you know, storms in Bangladesh? Um, but in, in, I think, at least in, in my mind, there is, there is a method to the madness there. And it's sort of broadly speaking, I'm interested in how, how the world gets better. You know, like I, I write about how the world gets better and I'm very, very interested in how that happens. Not necessarily in the, in the sort of Hans Rusling way or the, you know, all of our world in data, you know, like how child mortality is down by some, some proportion over 50 or 100 years. Like I'm interested in that, yes, but I'm even more interested in how that happens. You know, the, the broader sort of big, big picture stories, uh, the human big picture stories of how we sort of solve problem and solve problems and how we improve. I want to start with sort of a big question, and then maybe we can work our way down in scope. The big question is, what role does economic and political freedom play in addressing environmental challenges and advancing human progress? So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you start with the easy ones, yeah. right? Uh, um, so obviously, this is, this is sort of like unsettled, I think. Um, but I'm, it's, it's, most people come down on one side or the other, right? And that sort of informs their priors. Um, and if you, were be able, if, if you were able to sort of prove it, you know, economic freedom makes makes environment better then everybody would be on that, that side so it's it's sort of tricky um but i think there's a lot strong case to be made that you know the freer the society the better we take care of the environment generally um that doesn't always happen and doesn't always happen everywhere and but mostly mostly because at, at the end of the day it's like property uh, ownership over land over over things over you know even over the air um means that people take care of them that's that's the baseline case here if you own something you don't you don't you don't waste it you you, you take better care of it and you you sort of like if we want to speak finance we sort of internalize the, all the futures revenue stream that we get from that um uh, from that land or air or whatever it is the property that we own um we have tons of examples like that especially fishing rights this happens a lot right like we're often with the help of government this isn't a government versus market story it's more like ownership or not ownership um, where fishermen are assigned certain quotas and they have a certain proportion of the, of the, of the catch and they can catch this and that much, which means that they, uh, they don't overfish because this is their right. And if they overfish today, they wouldn't have much fish next year or tomorrow. And, and similarly, similarly or, or, or on the other side, right? Like if we don't have ownership over say forests in the Amazon, which I'm sure we'll get to, um, 
we have a lot of, of, of illegal logging and a lot of people chopping things down and there is no sort of you know, taking care of the future there. Why? Well, because if you don't chop them down, someone else will chop them down, right? You, you sort of like you get into this weird situation of just grabbing whatever natural resource you can as quickly as you can before your neighbor does. Uh, whereas if you have a proper legal system and you have a proper sort of property right uh, uh, regime, then people take care of it better. So I think that's the baseline story for why economic freedom matters for um, uh, for the environment. Yeah, it's something I notice a lot in your writing is a focus on sort of like institutions um, mattering and the way that they structure incentives, I guess, would be the way that, that I put it. That is an emphasis on property rights and uh, sort of the rule of law and all the things that you, you talked about there. When we talk about economic freedom, a lot of times what people, you know, associate with that or hopefully associate, associate it with is uh, growing uh, wealth and growing economic prosperity. And um, that sort of gets into the idea of the environmental Kuznets curve, which you've written about. It's this idea that as an economy grows, there's a certain level of environmental degradation that's involved in that. But at a certain point, they hit a certain level of wealth where um, it flips, and fi finally, the society becomes you know wealthy enough where they can afford higher environmental living standards. Can you talk a little bit about the the environmental Kuznets curve, and then what it means for how economies should approach the uh, the use of their natural resources, and then specifically growing economies or uh, countries in the developing world, how they should approach their natural resources? Yeah, right. So, so, so this is a really important um, idea in economics generally, and, and specifically in environmental economics. It's very controversial too. Um, but it seems, so the idea is like you, you explained, that when a country starts off pretty poor, it uses a lot of its, its natural resources, but as it grows, it sort of weans itself off that and it starts using less and less. Uh, so there is a turning point, which would be the peak of the of the, the Kuznets curve, uh, from where a country starts using less of, of whatever environmental reason, resource we're looking at. Usually, we 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 include emissions here, like CO two emissions or so. Uh, but we could do forests too. We could do fish in the sea. We could do all kinds of environmental um, uh, things and plot that over over a, a curve and see how how rich and poor countries uh, align essentially. Um, it's it's clear when it comes to forest, I think, or at least forestry is sort of further along the Kuznets curve, because, and this is something that not much, more, many people know, most countries in the West, most European countries, I think the US as well, um, have growing forests, you know, they're growing, like, the UK has more forests now than it did in the Doomsday Book in 1080, 1086, right? It's like, uh, we have this idea that, you know, Europeans in their uh, ravenous capitalistic uh, you know, influence, they just burned down all the forests they had and they chopped everything and they destroyed the nature, which to a certain extent they did. That's what they did in the you know, 1700s and the 1800s. That's not wrong. It's just that after a while, they graduated up from that, if you will. They evolved and they started producing things that were more val valuable, um, empowering their, uh, their industries with different sources and different fuels. And then the forest came back. You know, like we've, we've learned this in, in, in recent decades as well. Like when we stop using as much land as we used to, the forests grow back, you know? So, so most Western countries are growing their forests. And, and so we get this like correlation between a, a, a poor country in its growth phase using a lot of natural resources and it looks very unsustainable and dangerous for, 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 the, for, for nature or for forests in general. And then after a while they stop, they wean itself off and then they, they increase the forest, forest again once, they, once they're rich. We could think of it as another consumption good, you know? It's like, 
when I'm poor, I really need to uh, to focus on what keeps me alive, me and my family alive. I have to do the basic essentials. But when I'm richer, I can spare some of it for for a nice garden or a nice forest or taking care of my my environment. I have the I can afford that. I have the luxury to do this. Certainly, and so, so some of that has to do with time too. As your wealth grows, you know, it frees up your your time and your labor to to address environmental problems as well. You're not as focused on. Uh, like you said, the sort of essential things keeping you alive. Yeah, and I think like I, I often think about in, the, in this conversation, it's it's almost implicitly it's like you know rich Western, um, well-educated people who are very well off who are lamenting poor countries of the world who are chopping down too much of their uh, forest. Specifically, this is the case in Brazil and Amazon, right? Um, uh, it's like, oh, this is bad for the planet and you shouldn't do this. And you're like, hang on, people. Here are a bunch of poor people who don't really have your privilege and they don't have time and they don't have, they can't afford to look 150 years into the future. They have to survive today. And you can't really just like, you know, lament them or attack them or um, uh, ridicule them for doing that. And, and, and in my head, it's like, it's so weird because this is one of the few assets that these people have, you know, it's like, why are they not allowed to use the very assets that are at their disposal? Right? That doesn't really make any sense to me. Just because somebody possibly on the other side of the planet doesn't think you should be using the resources at your disposal. It, it's bizarre because, like you said, uh, oftentimes these people are sort of living on the edges of p poverty and stuff. And it's like the only thing that could, it's really their only access to sort of grow out of that poverty or, um, you know, improve their lives. So. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, and so specifically, I'm going to come back to Brazil again. Like yeah. that was a thing a couple of years ago that I wrote about a lot with the forest fires in Brazil and like in the, in, in declaring in the last couple of, of years or so, um, which I think I, I suspect that it's not really a forest thing. It's more like a media hype. And it's like, you know, the, the, the South American version of Trump was in the lead, you know, like that we have to attack him because Trump is evil. And then it doesn't really matter what the underlying topic is. We just have to, you know, because there was all this like, you know, how, how much of the Amazon was disappearing in 20, I think this was 2018, 2019, something. And then the next year, it was, you know, like the first, that year, everyone was like on and on and on about it and everywhere and every, you know, the celebrities and presidents and everyone was uh, worried about the, the Amazon and, you know, sharing Instagram photos of forests that weren't the Amazon or weren't 2019. Right. Um, it was hilarious. And, and, and then, you know, the next year when, you know, the, the, the net Amazon clearing was something like 50% higher, there wasn't a peak. Like nobody talked about it the next year. It's like, yeah, clearly you guys don't care about the forest. You just care about, you know, the political imagery of what you're doing. This is ridiculous. But even so, like when we talk about Brazil, so Brazil is like a weird, sometimes we talk about Brazil as the, as the median country of the world, because they're somewhere in the middle in most things, you know, income, it's a big country, development, that kind of thing. And when we plot sort of Brazil's GDP per capita and how rich the country is uh, or how much the average person earns, it kind of looks like they should have passed the point of the Christmas curve. They should have reduced their, how much, how, how much impact that they have on, on the forest, especially they should have like, the deforestation rates in the Amazon should have come down. But what you forget there and what people often forget is that, uh, that Brazil is a massive country and it's sort of divided uh, in, 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 a, in a rich South and a very, very poor North. Um, and the forest is in the north. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of farmers and rural people and people in the north living, you know, basically sub-Saharan uh, sub African um, uh, living standards. 
And by that from, from that point of view, it's not weird at all that they're chopping down forests and they're clearing forests for land. That, that's basically what people are supposed to be doing at that stage of the development. It's not that weird. So we've mentioned you have two articles, uh, one on deforestation at Human Progress, and then there was another one that you're mentioning here uh, for AIER, where you kind of go through uh, the situation in Brazil and... I'll make sure I add those to the show notes so that our listeners can check those out. There's obviously a distinct difference between the way that you talk about these environmental issues and um, the way a lot of other people do. And there's sort of a focus on uh, the economic way of thinking, I would say that, you know, is definitely animates your writing and rightfully so, you know, given your background. What do you think are a few things that, you know, people who constantly push um, sort of political environmentalism and sustainability what are some things that you think they miss in their analysis of uh, the economy and sort of the environment? So one thing is something that, you know, economists have been sort of bashing for, for, for decades, if not century. It's the sort of the zero-sum game uh, fallacy. Like we, we're no, since basically 1800, we're no longer living in a world of zero-sum. When I get more, that doesn't mean somebody else get less because we have, we have a growing pie. We have more um, of what we had. Um, so, so, so that's something that I think happens a lot. And it's like if we are using all these emissions and if we're growing this much and if, you know, all these people in the West are living this amazing lifestyle, then somebody somewhere must be suffering. Somebody must be paying the, the consequences. This comes up a lot with like free, uh, not free trade, uh, fair trade uh, considerations or like, oh, how much of this banana, the revenue for this banana or this t-shirt or whatever went to the farmer. And it's like, this is completely missing the point, right? Because you look at the world as a zero sum if, if, if you uh, took something and somebody else lost something. And I think that, so that's one, I don't know, fallacy, but one mistake that people think, or a mistake that some people do when they think about the climate. Even more so, I think it's the inability to put things into perspective, like how bad, how much, how long, like, Generally, like I was listening to Greta Thunberg this morning, and like some of her TED talks and some of her um, uh, some of her uh, writings, and it's and and she's completely honest about this, but she blames it on her um, um, uh, autism, and she says, "Well, I see the world in black and white." And it's like, yes, girl, that's the problem. Uh, like yeah. the world is nuanced and the world is complicated, and very few things are black and white, and it's not like. Uh, uh, it, this is like a binary sort of switch where we just like turn off emissions and then you know we live in the land of unicorns no like there are trade-offs and the trade-offs happen at the margin we do a little bit more of something and do a little bit less of something else and and we have to sort of weigh those costs and benefits against each other all the time and when we do that the climate doesn't come out of that that big of a catastrophe um, or at least uh, this is something that i think steve conan uh said in, in a podcast a few days ago um, the, the, the certainty of the rhetoric, no, the uncertainty of the, of, the, of the science doesn't match the certainty of the rhetoric, um, which I think is something that people miss a lot. So, so we go overboard on, on, um, on you know, disaster and 12 years before we die and like the world is going to end and civilization is going to end. It's like none of that is on the table at all. And we, and we just have to sort of like, I, I, I don't really know why that happens and how, um, um, how that's a thing. But we need to sort of like compare the costs to the benefits and see, you know, what else can we do with this? Opportunity cost matter. That's something that economists push a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you hit on several things there. Uh, you know, we often get sort of pigeonholed as being like anti-environmentalists. And I'm not against, you know, improving the environment at all, but I'm against, you know, thinking in terms or not thinking in terms of trade-offs, you know, not recognizing that, you know, institutions matter and they structure incentives in certain ways and 
you know, some of the things that we try to stress uh, that, you know, environmentalists tend to overlook in their thinking. What does a sensible environmentalism then look like to you? We, you know, we've touched on, I think, some of the con- concepts that you'll talk about, but what are your thoughts there? So I think it's exactly that. Like, environmentalism isn't wrong. Like, we're not, this isn't a world of, like, I think Geta Thunberg is very good at this too. Like, this isn't a, a climate denier versus climate change debate. Like, most people understand that there is something that human human beings do to the to the climate and the, the, the sort of the denier train has sort of sailed and nobody's on that anymore train has sailed beautifully mixed with my <laughs> metaphors so that's not really the story anymore the story is uh, how much and to what extent and, and and so 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 how to do a sensible environmentalism is to look at the trade-off look at, at, at climate change as one problem among others um, I have a quote that I'm going to read to you from, from an IPCC report in 2015. Well, this is not 30 years ago. This is 2015. It's one of the recent reports. Um, and it says, for most economic sectors, the impact of climate change will be small relative to the impact of other drivers. And the drivers that they discuss is population, age, income, technology, relative prices, lifestyle, regulation, and governments. So it's like all these other things that all, you know, we would call this life, you know, this is what an economy is. This is all the other stuff that happen. Uh, And climate change, the impact of climate change is small compared to those. Um, So a sensible environmentalism takes that into account and it looks at these problems in context with the other problems that we might have. And we, and and we do the things that matter and the, the, the the things that are sort of uh, cost, cost effective or pass a cost benefit test, the the low hanging fruits, if you want. Uh, we don't, you know, overthrow society or revolutionize uh, uh, energy production or anything like that. We do small steps and the small stuff that we that we have to do. Uh, not the, you know, earth shattering cataclysmic stories that we sort of get in the media sometimes. Yeah. And obviously a big part of that is our ability to adapt to things. And, you know, one thing that you've pointed out in your writing is the fact that, you know, as we get richer, you know, not only are we in a lot of areas uh, reducing our impact on the environment, but we're also adapt- adapting in ways where the environment has less of an impact on us. Um, mm-hmm, so you've mm-hmm. r- written a little bit about deaths from natural disasters. Do you want to just walk our listeners through sort of the data that's going on there and um, explain sort of the theory behind uh, how technology is improving our ability to adapt and respond to these things? Sure, sure. Uh, so this is really interesting. And it's one of the sort of visual ideas of, of climate change. When we picture climate change, we sort of see uh, a, a storm before us or flooded towns or, or things like that, you know, like of that kind of nature, natural disasters, the kind of stuff that climate change is going to make worse, apparently. Um, and as far as I understand the science, that's a little murky. It might happen, it might not happen. We don't have that much uh, evidence that suggests that it will, uh, but there's a lot of modeling and it sort of seems plausible that this is how uh, a concentrated um, uh, CO2, um, a higher concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is gonna play out. Um, that's not unthinkable to me. Like, surely that's gonna happen. But, and, and while we sort of have this conversation, every single time there's a storm, every single time there's a, there's a hurricane, every single time there's a freeze in Texas or a massive blizzard in Chicago, it's like, oh, look, uh, climate change is here and it's hurting us and it's killing Americans. Um, and it's like, well, so first step, which every scientist accepts that we can never really point to one hurricane and say, well, this is climate change. The, ne- the previous one would have happened anyways, but this one was definitely climate change. Or the fact that this one is a little worse than the, ne- than the previous one, that this is climate change. Uh, so, so, so we always have this sort of murky. We can't really figure out which one is climate change and which isn't. That doesn't mean climate change doesn't happen. It just means it's hard for us to sort of pinpoint which one. Uh, but I sort of take a step back from this entire conversation and say, so what? 
Um, like what matters here is not what the climate does or what the weather does to us or what mother nature does to us. To us. What matters is how we can deal with that. So uh, the way that I put this to, 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 to an um, uh, economics audience is like, Everybody understands that if prices increase by, if my wage increased by 10%, but prices increase by 100%, I'm not richer, even though my nominal wage is higher, right? Like I can buy less things now. And I make the same sort of comparison with the climate here. If the climate gets 10 or 20% um, worse, hurricanes get stronger and more frequent, flooding more, uh, uh, more frequent or sea levels rise a little bit, the climate gets 10 or 20% worse. But my ability to protect myself against it gets 500 times better, I'm not worse off, you know, like I am more safe from the environment than I was before. Um, and that's sort of what we see over the sort of like long, long time periods here. Like, so when we look at people or um, annual deaths from, from natural disasters, for instance, for instance, they're massively down, massively, massively down from basically whatever time frame you want to look at. Uh, usually we do this per decade because there's a lot of variability in what happens like earthquakes or particular floods in one year or, or some stuff some things like that and they're just like since the 1920s we might be looking at something like 96 percent of fewer people who die from from uh from from natural disasters this isn't what you would expect if you listen to uh, the uh, if you listen to the to the rhetoric of the of the climate change debate or the media or the politicians or something, then you would think, you know, climate change is killing a lot more people and this is really bad and it's getting worse and worse and worse. No, we're safer than we ever were from the climate. Um, and, there, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a very simple way for how this happens, you know, and I kind of tried to illustrate this by just, you know, walking outside, you know, I live in a very cold country and it was something like, you know, 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Um, and it's super unsustainable for me to be there. I can't exist for a very long time. If I just stand there, I will die of, of, of hypothermia. I will get hypothermia and I'll die very soon. Um, and that's just nature being there. But the fact that I have all these protection, uh, the fact that I can walk inside a heat at home anytime I want, um, but that I wear all these clothes that protect me, that I could never have made it on my own, imported and bought and, and shipped across the world, uh, made by amazing people from, from all over. Um, and I can wear layers and layers and layers. That sort of protects me from the elements and I can sort of survive. And it's the same thing happening in, in a grand scale, on a grand scale when it comes to uh, people who die from, uh, from natural disasters. We get better at predicting the natural disasters. We get better at monitoring storm storms. We have warning systems. We have storm shelters. We have um, uh, storm outside of uh, Netherlands are very good at this, right? And New Orleans now too. Uh, we have storm surges and we have systems in place that when there is a storm, we can sort of shut down um, uh, most of the waterways and we can protect the cities from, uh, from the worst of, the, of, of what happens. We have better technology to communicate this. We have better stuff. We have houses that are more robust against uh, hurricanes, which means that we can hide and we can ride out the storm, literally. So yeah, do you want me to tell, talk about the, the human progress story? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, you touched on quite a lot there. I, I think, you know, one of the interesting things is, um, you know, you mentioned that, though, that, you know, obviously this is tremendous news, this decline in deaths from natural disasters, but there's a disconnect that you mentioned between the way that people tend to talk about climate change or envi environmental issues and the fact that there is good news like this. There's almost an unwillingness to acknowledge stories like these. Um, so I was wondering if you, maybe you could just talk a little bit about 
why you think there's that disconnect there and that yeah. becomes such a big part of uh, the sort of discourse around these issues. So it's hard. sometimes people like people on sort of my side of the spectra here like to make uh, make the, the you know, almost a conspiratorial argument. It's like, oh yeah, it's just the media trying to brainwash you and nobody listens to the truth and, and, and stuff like that. And I don't really, I don't think people sit on, you know, the, the, the news desk of New York Times. And it's like, hmm, how can we figure out to, how to say something that's wrong today? Yeah. Like that, I don't think that happens, right? Um, uh, but it, it, it's sort of in the nature of how we report information in a sense. Like good things happen slowly. Like we invent storm shelters, we build stuff slowly and like things improve gradually and we don't really notice it all the time. Whereas bad stuff happens all at once. Earthquakes and, and, and hurricanes and storms and things, um, they just happen all at once. And so they're news newsworthy um, in a sense. So I think that's one problem. Like the sort of the structure of how we consume news, if you wish. Um, my editor at Human Progress, Marianne Tupi, has this um, uh, thought experiment, thought experiment where if uh, he's trying to figure out what a newspaper would look like if they only had one issue a decade or one issue every 50 years instead of one issue every day or now, you know, online issues whenever news come up. Um, and, you know, the 50, the 50 year stories wouldn't be, you know, elections, it wouldn't be uh, some storm or something like that. It would be, you know, like, extreme poverty has almost been eradicated or like people who die from global uh, from natural disasters are completely fallen. It would be a different spin on a very positive spin on, on, on what's happening to the world and how the world gets better. So there's something about the rapidity of or, or speed with which we, we consume news. That's the problem, I think. Otherwise, I don't know, like bad news sell. Yeah. <laughs> we like to, to watch scary movies. Uh, we, yeah, I don't know, like stuff that are really scary or, or fascinating and it grips your imagination or not your grip, your attention but yeah like i think so so to, to so to illustrate the story it's like i wrote this article about bangladesh from last year um and 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 there was a storm in bangladesh in may last year um it was called amphan i think they pronounced it um it was a cy super cyclone and, it, and and i never heard of a super cyclone before but apparently that's when winds are not just like really really bad but terrifically terribly bad um, so something like 130 miles per hour or something like that. Like it was this, one of the strongest cyclones that we've ever recorded on earth. And it made landfall in Bangladesh, a poor country, low laying country with 160 million inhabitants. Like if I ever wanted to come up with a scenario for where climate change is gonna make, how, what the future of climate change is gonna look like, this is, this is it. Like terrible storms, worse than we've ever encountered hitting poor countries. Like this is bad. Um, and almost nobody's heard of it. Um, why? Not just because, you know, the pandemic was crowding out everything else, but because almost nobody died, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't hundreds of thousands of people, it was 128. Not 128,000, 128 people. Almost nobody died. Um, why? And this, is, this, is, this captures exactly what I find so fascinating with, with, with human progress and what fuels my, 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 my um, interest here. It's like, what was it that allowed us us or you know the Bangladeshi, I didn't do very much um, to not suffer hundreds of thousands of deaths from an event that happened almost exactly the same 50 years ago that killed 300,000 people. Um, and it's all this like you know preparation, it's building storm shelters, it's having advanced warning systems. So they knew days in advance that things were coming. They had like uh, like moving this information through all the channels that they possibly could. Um, they, they got their boats from the sea and, and moved them up the river so that they wouldn't 
uh, be destroyed in, in the storm. People stock up on necessities. They moved valuables out of the way. They evacuated people. Like all this stuff that happens thanks to technology and some amount of wealth uh, lets us weather what's the worst storm that we've ever seen. And that means nature can't really throw, even if nature gets incrementally worse, which is the fear of climate change and storms like these get worse and worse and happen more often. So what, you know, like, the, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what the math is for 128 divided by 300,000, but it's, it's not like the 99% or more, you know, it's like the death toll is almost nothing now. Yeah, it certainly gets to the point that we were talking about with uh, what a sensible environmentalism would look like that should be a focus on on growing wealth and with that, the technology and the expansion of sort of like the base of knowledge that humanity has that comes along with all that. So I want to shift focus a little bit since I have you. Um, you've been sort of a rare critic of carbon taxes. I'm just wondering, you, you know, what's your position there? And could you talk a little bit about, you know, it, it's sort of in the weeds economics, but, uh, you know, why is taxing an externality like that not just such an open and shut case? And what are your thoughts uh, just generally on carbon taxes? Okay, so I don't, I don't, I, I like to think that I don't have a strong opinion on this, but I probably do. And, and, and just to sort of like qualify it, if you want to do something at all or anything at all about climate that don't involve, you know, building storm shelters or other like things that I find completely reasonable um, or storm surge barriers and that kind of thing, if you want to do something, then a, a carbon tax is probably the least bad thing you can do. Right, it's like okay, I I have training in economics, so there's no it's no wonder I think so. You know, this is the way of, of, of how we um, allocate allocate costs, and the, the most efficient like the most efficient producer can carry it, and 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 the people who are not very efficient are sort of weaned out by a carbon tax. And it also like on the consumer side, it also makes people who use things that involve that include a lot of carbon or has a big greenhouse um, impact or a footprint carbon footprint. That means that they are the ones paying the price for it and, and you sort of internalize the externality in, in economics speaking the extra cost that you put on others by polluting you're now paying for it in in the in in, in the market price when you're actually like buying a, a flight ticket or a car or whatever it might be uh, so 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 far i'm sort of with us you know i don't have a problem with that if we want to do something this is pretty good it's efficient it's um it's one of the it's one of the best things that we that, that we can do uh, the problem is in, in 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 practice, if you wish, that it's not that easy to to have them to have them um, uh, work the way that you want them to. So Canada tried something. So first of all, it's very very hard to figure out what the price, the correct price of carbon is supposed to be. We can make some estimations, but when we do, they usually don't end up being that high, and we sort of have a problem between especially when, when politicians try to to enact them. They sort of want to use them as a revenue. Um, a source of revenue, but there's a problem there with with the tax base that sort of um, um, uh, that can move. So the higher your your tax rate on uh, say a carbon tax, the less somebody's going to use the product. That that's the point of the, the the sort of the tax system. So the more successful the policy is, the less money it raises for the government. So generally, that's not too good if you're a politician who wants the money to spend on something else. So you, you get into this weird uh, political. Um, um, trade-offs, and even more so, and this is something that the Canadians ran into when they were trying to do the, 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 the carbon tax in the last few years, I believe, was that it's sort of, the, the burden tends to fall on the poorest um, in the sense that they're the ones who still, like, uh, if I'm Bill Gates, if I fly a couple of times a year or I drive my car, that's not going to make an impact on my life, and I just pay a little higher fee. That doesn't do anything. 
Whereas if I am just barely scraping by and I really have to drive my car to get to work and we now have a high uh, carbon tax, that means I end up paying a lot of my, my share of income to, um, you know, to the planet essentially or to others who are suffering from the, from the climate damages. Uh, so the way that you get around that problem, political political problem, like if from an environmental point of view, it doesn't really matter who's carrying the burden or paying the price for, for, for carving, it just has to be paid. It just has to be a price for carbon. It just has to be more expensive. Um, but for equity reasons and for political reasons, that's not quite always so easy. So what you end up doing basically is something called a rebate. So you give tax deductions. I think that the Canadians amounted to something like 50, 50 um, Canadian dollars Tax, the blanket tax deduction for almost anyone, everyone. Um, and, and the idea then is that if you really need to, so, so what you lose on paying higher gas prices for, with, with a tax, you get back from the tax credit from the government. So you could keep buying that if you want to. It still has an effect because the relative prices have changed. You're, you're still doing something from a policy point of view. You're still nudging people in the, in the right direction, if you will. But the effect is a lot smaller and you allow people the, 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 the previous consumption bundle, bundle that they have. So when we write this up and like, I'm sure a lot of, of microeconomic students have done this, uh, when you just, as, a, as an exercise, when we write them up, we, a, a rebate allows people to, to reach the consumption bundle that they had before. So they're not worse off, but that also means that the policy isn't that forceful. It only impacts the people who actually end up paying the price. So it's very, like it gets into tricky territory and that's already presuming that we find the right price. If we put a price that's too high, we're wasting resources, right? Like we're 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 we're, we're doing less production or transportation or anything that we want to do than the value that we get out of them, even considering the damage of the yeah um, I, of the thing. I generally tend to defer to my colleague Jordan McGillis on carbon taxes, but a lot of what you touched on there hits my feelings as well. There's the uh, regressive problem, um, but then obviously it seems unlikely that the legislature whatever body is, you know, trying to set the rate of tax is going to uh, set it, you know, exactly at the social cost of carbon for the reasons that you said uh, it's a re revenue generator. So a lot of times, you know, what might be a good proposal on paper when it actually goes through the political process, uh, it ends up becoming something that doesn't achieve the goals that, you know, you, you set out to achieve and ends up doing more harm than good, so. And on top of that, you get you get another problem uh, because you sort of need to coordinate internationally. A lot of companies can just move their, their business. If, if you produce something that includes, or has carbon in its, in its production, and you just want to avoid that, you can just move to a different country. You don't pay the tax of production and sort of like, and then the country who who who, uh, who, who enacted the the, the the carbon tax just ends up hurting its own consumers or and its own producers, which also hurts them politically because right, people yeah. don't really like that. So it's like, if you want to do this, you kind of need to do it in an efficient way. You need to do it um, across the globe at the same time, at the same rate to avoid those sort of problems. But now we're in, very wishy-washy economics territory, right? Because this is never going to happen. Like politically, this is never this is not feasible. We're just dreaming right, yeah. here, um, and 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 then we can dream about you know what would be the perfect ideal um, level. We can dream about all that all day because but because it's not going to happen. It's like to me, it's sort of like a wasted opportunity. Like why don't we just spend our time doing something that we can actually do um, that actually makes more sense? Like speeding up economic growth and maybe cutting regulations yeah. for technologies that can help us along the way with climate change. And Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Like to an economist who likes looking at the long term, uh, economic growth sort of swamps everything. You know, like if we get, 
raising raising the average growth from two percent to three percent has a massive impact over 100 years even though it sounds like well two percent it's the same thing nobody nobody notices from year to year uh, but over 100 years there's just a lot a lot a lot more stuff and a lot more wealth so yeah i mean most of the time i think like carbon tax is sort of like a, a dead end uh, it doesn't really do what you think you you want it, what we ideally want it to do, and it is, there are better things to do. So we're kind of running uh, up to close to our, our time here. Um, my, my last question for you, just uh, what are you working on right now? And then where can people go to find your work? All right. So all of my uh, all of my my articles come up on a site called Authory. So it's author with a Y at the end and slash Joachim Buk. So J-O-A-K-I-M-B-O-O-K. Um, I am a half active on Twitter, uh, annoying people from time to time. Um, also, the handle is Joachim Buk, just my name. Um, and right now, I am working on a lot of different books, uh, a lot of different things. I am uh, uh, trying to go through a lot of different topics. Um, a lot of it, 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 it this is almost how I, how I do things these days. Like a lot of things happening at the same time, um, and, I, and I try to, to, to bring them together. I recently wrote a couple of interesting things about the British house market for, for CapEx um, and house prices. And I tried, took a sort of a cheeky, cheeky position that house prices haven't actually increased during the pandemic. They've been cheaper, not more expensive, uh, which is a little counterintuitive. So yeah, like I like to I like to do things like that, that seem a little bit outside of it and give, give us things to think about. Yeah, I'll uh, be sure to link to a couple of your articles that we discussed here today and then uh, your work at AIER and some of the other places where your work's featured. So. Uh, my guest has been Joachim Book. Joachim, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much.